talked about last time on the assignments. So, no, I didn't change the quiz. The iTunes quiz is still up and available. You can take that through Monday. Through Monday, uh, quiz six will be available starting on Friday, and you can take that through Monday as well. And if you decided to do the exam replacement, again, it's optional. You have that uh, option. That's due on Monday. So busy, busy day Monday with a couple quizzes in that due. Homework seven will be due a week from Friday. That's the one I changed. That way I'll look at them that weekend and give them back to you Monday morning. So if you want to take a quick look at it before the exam, you can at least not go into the exam with a false notation, notion in your head. You can at least look at them first. So I will give them back to you on the, before the exam on Monday. And the extra credit assignment, if you're going to do that, is also due on Monday. And then I switched, in order to keep things sort of spread out, I also switched the article review. That's now due on the 27th, so it's due the day before Thanksgiving. Of course, you'll still have till Thanksgiving morning to submit it if you want to submit it online. So you're not, you know, not required if you're not going to be here for whatever reason, if you're traveling. You can still submit that online or submit it in class before if you want to do it, if you want to do it earlier. So those are the only couple of changes that were made. Let me give you homework seven here, which I neglected to give you on Monday. Here you go, sir. Any questions on assignments? We're coming up to the end and shortly we'll have everything else there. We'll get up to the final exam on the list pretty soon. So, No? 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 Okay. Pretty picture of the day for today. Saturn. How did they make that? That's actually a photograph. That is a photograph taken of Saturn as seen by the Cassini spacecraft. Now we couldn't take that from Earth because this is the far side of Saturn. So the spacecraft has flown to Saturn, is now orbiting around it, and sometimes it is on the other side. So the Earth is actually in this image. Did you notice that? The Earth is, can I see it here? Right about, oh, where is it? Little speck down in here? Here. Make it a little easier. You won't be able to see the dot, but you can see where the Earth is. So there, there's our Earth. Yeah. All right. I don't mean to sound, no. you know, obvious, but how is this? I understand it's photographed. Mm-hmm. But the ring of Saturn goes around the planet, and that yes. looks like it's kind of in the background. It does on that image. What you're really seeing, this is, this is the ring right here. You're seeing the shadow of the ring on this side. So these dark spots here are actually the ring. The shadow of the ring shadow being across the planet there. So this ring does go across. It's actually on the back. It doesn't look like it. I know that. But it's actually on the back side, the near side to the spacecraft, the far side from us of the planet right here. And this one does go. This is on the front side of the planet. That's why it's completely blocked out. And what's up with the little white ring around the planet? Why does it have that little, you know, it's almost like a white outline of the, of the sphere? Which, which white? This one? The ring or the? Oh, right around it? Probably. You know where the sun is in this image? Sun is right behind Saturn. So that could be, and I can't say for sure, but that could be light coming through as the light comes through the Earth's atmosphere and reflects onto the moon. That could be light coming through the outer part of the Saturn's atmosphere from the sun and being bent around. Not by general relativity, just simply by bending through the atmosphere. So that's likely what this, is, what this, part, what this part is. So 
there, there we are to perspective if you get out to the distance of Saturn. So we're not, we're not a whole lot even from that near distance in the universe, let alone what we're starting to talk about in, in lecture. Um, the rings, actually, there's a, these are the rings you're used to seeing, the ones right in here. There's actually a lot more. You can actually see a couple, a thinner ring out here, this one around here. And the biggest ring, relatively faint, but the biggest, thickest ring is actually this, the E-ring way out. You can't even get the whole thing on the image. Uh, that's one of the largest rings, and that is particles that come off of one of the moons of, of Saturn. So, moon of Saturn is uh, essentially erupting these particles in icy volcanoes. So not a volcano. When you say volcano, what do you think of? You think of molten rock. Well, when you get out that far in the solar system and you, don't, and you have cooler temperatures, you can actually have volcanoes of ice. So ice that gets essentially molten ice. That makes sense. You know, the ice is what's being erupted out, and ice particles are getting thrown out. And this is actually the biggest of Saturn's rings. It's actually bigger than this entire ring system combined. So it's a very, very wide, wide ring there, the furthest out. That's the en en Enceladus. I'm not sure on the pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah. It may be. I'm not. I didn't double check the pronunciation. That's what I've always called it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's. I mean it's correct. But that's the moon and it's actually, it's, it is volcanically active but instead of erupting um, rock particles like the Earth does or like Io does, it actually erupts ice particles out and has created this entire ring. And actually there's several moons, several of Saturn's moons actually orbit within that ring. So they pick up all these, all these particles as well. Not Shep, even larger. These are actually regular large moons. So there's, there's shepherding moons too, but these are actually regular large, some of the large moons actually orbit within that ring. And that's how wide this ring is by comparison. It's much, it's much further out. Um, and you actually get, it was three or four moons that actually orbit. I don't know if my other image, I pulled up one image of it here just to give you an idea of the scale and it does not show me. That one doesn't happen to show any of the moons. but. You have A, B, and C are the primary rings that you normally see. If you ever look at Saturn through a telescope, you're seeing the A, B, and C rings. D ring is in a lot closer than F, G, further out, and E. But look at the size of E. E is this wide by comparison to these, to, the, to everything else. It's actually as big as the rest of the ring system pretty much combined. So gives you an idea there. And that, and that again is taken by Cassini, so it had to fly out there to Saturn, you know, 10 astronomical units away from the sun, get around the backside of it, which it does all the time now that it's in orbit, wait until everything was set up right so that you actually had Saturn blocking out the sun, because normally if you look back towards this and the sun is, you know, up here or down here or around, it's going to blot out everything else because it is still so bright. But using essentially the finding it up so you get an eclipse that Saturn blocks out the sun, you can actually get an image like this. The rings are still illuminated because of light scattering through them. And in fact, you can even see a little bit of illumination on the back part of Saturn. Some of this is not rings. Some of this is actually light from the back of Saturn. So even though it's not getting light directly from the sun, it's getting light indirectly. Light comes to, comes to Saturn, bounces off the rings, reflects onto the planet, and then is reflecting back off to the spaceship. So these rings are actually illuminating part of Saturn. Whoops. We don't need to do that. Eventually. Are there any storms in the atmosphere right now or 
Um, I'm not aware of any other, any certain, any major ones right now. There certainly are continuous storms, but in nothing, nothing new, that's there, that I've that I've read about recently. Any other questions? Questions? No. All right. Well, let's get on to our galaxy, and we'd looked at the spiral arms last time, so I'm going to jump ahead to the next section. Section 14.6. And we'd looked at, you know, the spiral arms and what we knew about them a little bit, maybe how they were, how they maintained themselves, talked about how they formed. Got really no idea yet. We'll come back to that a little bit later in one of the next the next chapter probably. Try to get some idea of maybe how we see get spiral arms. But we don't have a real good idea of it yet. The next thing we want to try to determine about our galaxy is how much. What's its mass? How much matter is there? And the way we can determine masses, we used it for stars, is when something orbits something else. So we can use that for planets going around the sun. We can use it for moons going around uh, a planet. Anything where you have something orbiting it, you can then determine the mass. And you do that using Kepler's third law. And you determine, in this case, here's the sun orbiting around the center of our galaxy. And you can measure how far away the center of our galaxy is. We've now been able to get good measurements on that. How far away is it? So how many astronomical units, for example, is it from the sun to the center of the galaxy? How long does it take the sun to make one orbit around? We can make measurements to get good estimates of that, how long it takes the sun. A couple hundred million years to make one circuit around the center of our galaxy. And we can then use that to calculate the mass of the galaxy. Well, kind of. Not the entire mass of the galaxy, but only the mass within the orbit. So whatever mass is inside the sun's orbit that is closer to the center of the galaxy than us, that's really what determines, the, that's really what the sun's speed is determining, what the mass is in here. It doesn't tell us about the mass further out. We'll have to look at other things for that. You've got to look at stars that are further out and further out and further out to try to get a measurement of what the entire mass of the galaxy is. So if you were looking at stars orbiting very close to the galactic center, we'll look at a couple of those towards the later in class today. It only tells you about the mass of that very central portion. It doesn't tell you what go, what's going on further out, at least in terms of the mass. So this is what this is telling you, what it's telling us in terms of the speed how fast this object moves depends on how much mass there is in the galaxy, but it only depends on the mass inside its orbit. How fast it moves has no, does not have any dependence on what, how much mass is here. There could be 10 times, 20 times, 30 times the mass that's inside out here. It won't affect the speed at which the sun is orbiting. It only depends on that inner portion. So we can make measurements like this looking at a bunch of stars. We can look at stars. We can observe stars and objects at different distances from the center of the galaxy. You can look closer. You can look further away. And you can measure them. And you find pretty little pink curve here. There's our sun. And ignore it dips down way down there, but just when you get further away, you start to measure that the, how fast they're rotating as compared to the distance. So. What you get is, it varies a little bit, you get a little wiggle there, and then you note that as you get further and further out, the, the stars, the objects, the gas clouds, whatever you're measuring, are moving faster and faster and faster. 
That's a puzzle. It shouldn't do that. It should be the opposite. It should be the little dashed curve there. And that's what happens in our solar system, right? All the mass is in the sun. Okay. So when you look at Mercury, it's zipping around there pretty quick. If you find Mercury's velocity, it's pretty fast. Venus, a little slower. Earth's even slower. Get out to Neptune and Pluto and those objects, they're moving even slower. So you would expect that at some point you might get some odd stuff going on in here because you're still, you're not inside all the mass. If you know what I mean, there's still a lot of mass that's outside. So as you go further out, you've added more mass in there. So that can throw it off. But eventually, by the time you get 15,000 parsecs, that's about getting towards the edge of the galaxy. Once you get to 15 and 20,000 parsecs, you should be outside most of the light, most of the visible matter in the, in the galaxy. You're already outside that. You've just got the few stars out there. And if you've got hundreds of millions of solar masses in here, and you've got a few hundred out there, that's not going to make a big difference. So what you'd expect to see, and what astronomers expected to see, was it to drop off. And that these stars would be moving slower and slower, just as they do in the solar system. But that's not. In order to get the curve that we see, in order to count for the observations that we see, because that's just observation, that's what we get. We make measurements of how fast things are moving, and we can measure how far they're away from the center of the galaxy. Now that's just an observation. In order to get that, we need about twice as much mass, twice the mass of the galaxy, in terms of add up all the stars that you see, add up all the nebulae that you see, add up all the gas and dust that you can detect. Count all of that. You've got to double that in order to get the curve that we see. But we don't see any of that other stuff. We don't see twice as much matter out there. It's dark. This, the galaxy looks like it has some kind of end to it. It's a spiral galaxy. You know, simplified there. You get out to this range. And yes, like many other things, it doesn't have a hard edge. Right? It's not like the Earth's surface. The Earth's atmosphere gets thinner and thinner as it goes out. Well, sure, the galaxy does the same thing. And there's still stars going out there. But in terms of visible light, what we can see, much less than we see further in. But as you keep measuring those little bits that are further out, you keep finding that they're moving faster and faster. In order to do that, you've got to have a lot more matter out there than what you can see. And this is what we call, right now, dark matter. Sensible name, dark matter, something you can't see. And when I say you can't see it, that doesn't mean it's just, oh, it's just not emitting a lot of energy. It's real cold and it's not emitting anything. It means that we don't see it at any wavelength. So cold hydrogen, wouldn't, it wouldn't give off visible light. You wouldn't give that nice red glow that we see in nebulae. But it would emit the 21 centimeter line. We could still detect it. This is, whatever this is has to be very hard to detect. So could be normal matter in just things like black holes. Okay, Black holes are hard to detect. Um, it could be you know, white dwarfs or neutron stars, things that are very far away. Could there be a lot of those out there? You know, there are possibilities to try to explain some of this, but there is a big chunk of material, and not just a little bit. Remember, this is one mass, one galaxy mass. This is two galaxy masses. Meaning that for every star you see in here, you have to have two stars worth of material. 
further out to explain the observations. For every nebula that you see here, every big Orion nebula with all the stars forming and all the gas and dust, you need two more of similar masses further out in order to explain what we're actually seeing. And that's what we're calling dark matter and it turns out that the normal matter that we look at is when we get out to the universe is maybe three or four percent of the universe. That's everything that we see, everything that we've talked about so far. You know, us here in this room, the Earth, the solar system, the stars in the galaxy, stars, the nebulae in the galaxy, all the other galaxies. That makes just a couple percent of what there is and a lot more is this dark matter and then another even stranger substance that we haven't gotten to yet that, we'll, that is a, for a future chapter. But that's the problem that we're seeing. We're looking for this. This is what we expected to find when you get out far enough. You know, maybe there's a little more past the edge and it would drop further. But as far out as we can go, you know, more than twice the visible size of the galaxy, the speeds are still increasing. So there's something really interesting, really weird going on there. So what can it be? Sort of mentioned a few of these already. It's dark, and I tried to emphasize, it's dark at all wavelengths. So it's not emitting visible light, it's not emitting infrared, it's not emitting radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays. We don't see it anything. So it's got to be something very, very dark, something very hard to find. So could they be black holes? No. And in terms of black holes, we mean black holes the mass of the sun or a couple, or a couple times the mass of the sun. Possibly they'd be hard to detect. If they're that far away, if nothing's orbiting a black hole, nothing's going on, no, no materials being uh, sucked into it, it's a hard thing to detect. So there could be, but our models of how the stars form really seem to think that's not, not likely that you'd have formed that many. It's not that you just need a few black holes out there. Oh, 20 black holes and we're done. That would be easy to figure out. You need, again, for every star you see here, you need two more out there. And this problem actually gets worse in other galaxies. So ours is, is not, not as bad as some of the others. A better option is something like brown dwarf stars. If you recall, brown dwarfs are the failed stars. They didn't get hot enough at their core to actually ignite energy, to ignite nuclear fusion. There could have formed a lot of them out in the halo of our galaxy and could be orbiting around it. Be almost impossible to find because they're going to be faint. And if these things formed, like the rest of the halo, 10 billion years ago, they're going to have cooled off a lot. So they're not going to be very bright, not emitting a lot of energy, and be very tough to find. White dwarfs as well would be hard to find, as they, the ones that formed earlier, early would be very hard. They'd start cooling off. They wouldn't have cooled off to the black dwarf stage yet. But still, a faint white dwarf at a large distance, when you're talking many thousands of parsecs away, many tens of, th tens of thousands of light years, would be hard to find. Same with red dwarf stars. If you recall, I think, we t I think I gave you the example of the sun and that if you took the sun and put the sun just 30 light years away, it now goes from being you know, real bright out there when you try to go look at it to being one of the fainter stars that would be visible to the naked eye. If you tried to put even smaller stars that far away, real little red dwarf stars, they'd be almost invisible or would be invisible. You wouldn't be, they wouldn't be emitting enough light that you'd be able to detect them over those distances. The best normal option, that's the kind of thing that works. There are other things that have been suggested. All sorts of strange subatomic particles that might just be you know, filling around the universe. You know, it's 
one of those things where, yeah, it's a good explanation, but what, what's your theory and what does it predict that we can measure? You know, we can actually look for these. There are actually ways to try to measure white dwarfs and red dwarfs. You've got to come up with some kind of measurement, and that's the thing. We don't have any evidence for anything like that yet. Doesn't mean it's not correct. Just means we're not to the state yet where we can come up with this particle or some kind of particle that accounts for a lot of mass. And when you're talking about subatomic particles, they're teeny tiny. You need, for each star, you need two stars. So that's a lot of subatomic particles. You've got to have a lot of particles out there floating around to account for the amount of mass we're missing. Again, it's not like you're missing 10% of the mass or 15, you know, some small number. You're missing twice the mass that you see, that you see here. So how can we detect some of these? These are one of the ways. And looking at white dwarf stars, how can we find a white dwarf star? Well, here's one where you can't see the white dwarf, but you can see its effects on objects behind it. And what happens if you have an object passing in front, this very faint object, a white dwarf for example, passing in front, when it gets directly in your line of sight, if it lines up exactly with that, you get a lensing effect and it magnifies the brightness of the star. Makes it look brighter than it otherwise would. Essentially you get all the light that's coming straight to you. That's what you would have seen anyway. But you also get some light that was going to this direction around that gets bent by the gravity of the star. Einstein's general relativity that the star will bend, will bend light. So it would come around here so now you're getting it twice as bright, three times as bright. Don't forget that this is three-dimensional. So you also have light coming this way that gets bent to you. And the, and the star could get significantly brighter when that white dwarf happens to pass right in front of it. So you'd be looking for an event like this. Here's what you see first. A little while later you see this real bright star. Not bright glowing in the sky that's going to look, you know, uh, stand out. But it will look slightly brighter. You could take a picture of the star field and you see this one star gets couple times brighter than it was before. And then it slowly fades off afterwards and disappears as that star moves out of it. This is an example of one of those images giving you a little bit better idea. Don't, I don't want you to get the idea that you can look out there and as the white dwarf passes in front these stars get really, really bright. There's one image before. You can see the object right here. And there it is during the event. So in April it was that bright. In November it was that bright. And you can look for these kind of events in different images. You can just constantly take images of the sky and look for these events to try to count how many white dwarfs you think might be out there. And however many you see, you can use that as kind of a statistical estimate to determine how many are, how many are out there overall. And it actually can account for a chunk of what you need. Some of these observations suggest that maybe about half of the mass we need can be accounted for by white dwarfs that we just can't see otherwise. So that accounts for one of these masses, but that's still a whole other mass of the galaxy that can't be accounted for by this. And nothing else seems to be possible. Nothing else seems to work correctly yet to be able to explain that. Now let me, before I do that, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. There's another way to do this. There is another way to explain this uh, mass that some astronomers do think about. And that is maybe gravities. Maybe our theory of gravity isn't right yet. You know, we had Newtons. 
Well, Newton's works really good, but it breaks down in certain situations. Now we've got Einstein's. Uh, general relativity works really good for everything that we observe. Does it not work right when you get to really, really large distances? Is something wrong with it? And is it, a lot, is it causing us to overestimate how much mass there is? And really, is there not this much mass? Again, what astronomers have to do is come up with a new theory of gravity that works as good as Einstein's and everything we already know about, but also predicts different motions further when you have very large distance. When you're talking uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of light years, that it actually behaves differently. So that's one thing that is a possibility as well. So could be some kind of dark matter. There certainly is evidence that there's some of it. But some of this could be that we're still trying to understand gravity. Or all that matter could be out there. And you might find that Einstein is correct. So it's an ongoing, ongoing problem trying to be able to understand where this dark matter is. And again, that's just for our galaxy. It's not that our galaxy is special. In the next chapter, we'll see this happens in every galaxy we look at. So it's not just our galaxy is unusual, but every single galaxy. And if you look at clusters of galaxies, they're even worse. Instead of missing just the amount of matter that you'd think you'd be by putting 10, 110 or 100 or 1,000 galaxies together, you're missing that plus 10 times more. So it really gets bad. The, wor- the bigger the scales you look at, the worse it gets. And again, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit more later on. Now the l- last section here goes to the inner part of our, of our galaxy, looking down towards the center of our galaxy. There it is. There's a wider field image of it. And if we zoom on, there's the center of our galaxy. Stands out prominently. Can't miss it if you go look out and look. You know. Uh, late summer, early fall, if you look out due south, that's the center of our galaxy is there. Um, doesn't stand out. You don't usually notice it is incredibly bright. And that's because of all this dust that's in between us and the center of the galaxy. Now there are ways to see in when you look in the infrared. You can actually make measurements and you can actually find a little bit better there when you zoom in this little box. There's the arrows that are still highlighting the center of our galaxy. Not any of these other bright objects around it, but that's the actual center. There's not a lot there. It's almost it's completely blocked out by dust between us and the center. So even if there is anything at the center of our galaxy emitting a lot of energy, we can't see it. Now this is a very small region. You're getting down to a region. This is about one light year, about three tenths of a parsec, about one light year in size. So you're really looking at a relatively small region of the galaxy. And we're going to find out that there's a lot of mass in that. And that's where we come up to the idea that there is a black hole at the center of our galaxy. So here's some other images as we look it out in different, different wavelengths. So if we look at it in, what is this? This is infrared. And then you zoom in and look at it in, this is radio. So this is a radio image of the center of our galaxy. When you zoom into that part in x-rays, You start to see a little bit on the center. And then you go back into radio at the very, very center, which is just this little core. You have almost a little bit of structure. Again, you're talking a couple light years in size here. So very, very small section. I know light years sound tremendous. But when you're talking about a galaxy, hundreds of thousands of light years, 100,000 light years across, and you're talking about the inner three light years, that's a very tiny portion of 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 the galaxy. So we start to see there's some interesting things going on. You know, 
Is there evidence of some kind of spiral structure even down there? Is that what happens? Is there something going on there? Again, we still don't completely understand what causes the spiral arms, but there are some interesting patterns going on when you look at the very center of the galaxy in radio waves or in infrared and, and radio that can penetrate deep down into that area. So we can look at it, we can study it, but it's, it's difficult and it's not something we can do with visible, with visible light. So what do we know about the galaxy, center of our galaxy? There's a lot of stars there. What is it, millions of times? A million times higher than near the Earth? So if you could live near the center of our galaxy, boy, the sky would be bright. Go out tonight, look, at, look see how many stars you see. And for each one of those, put a million more stars in the sky. The sky's going to be pretty bright, even if you're just putting all those, star, all those stars out there. So a lot more stars packed together very close to the center of the, ga- of the galaxy. There's molecular g- gas, or ring of gas, that's orbiting around the center of our galaxy. Hundreds of parsecs in size. There's very strong magnetic fields associated with that. Um, when you get closer in, that's further out. That's 400 parsecs, this ring. When you get closer in, you get a ring or disk of material that's only a few parsecs, only a few light years across. Not very big. We're getting down towards the accretion disk, probably the accretion disk around the black hole. I'm jumping ahead and giving you the end here. But probably a black hole that is accreting material and gathering material. And this is the disk that is now gathering that material to be slowly, uh, slowly go into the black hole. As that heats up, we get a very strong x-ray source. When you heat up that disk of material, you get very strong x-rays. You've got a lot of particles spiraling into that black hole very, very quickly. And that will emit a very strong, a very lot of x-rays, very high temperatures, as it rotates and goes in towards the center of the black hole. So this is the kind of thing we see. There's a lot of stars there. When we look at how those stars move, they have really odd orbits. I'm going to show you a little bit of that in here in a minute. Um, We see some rings of gas rotating around. We can measure how fast they're rotating. They're whipping around down there very, very fast. And the very strong x-ray source. As material spirals into that black hole, again, jumping ahead there, giving you the answer, but as it spirals into that black hole, heats up to incredibly high temperatures and gives off a lot of x-rays. I see a question? No? Okay. All right. So let's see. So apparently, giving you away, gave away the answer before, but there is a gigantic black hole at the center. How big is this black hole? Probably about four million times the mass of the sun. So put four million suns together, collapse them down. That's about the mass of this, of this black hole. That can account for all of the things that we see. It can account for the x-ray source. It can account for these disks of material spiraling around it as this very strong source of gravity at the center of our galaxy. It's, the, it's not the black hole that's emitting any of the energy. Right? Once it gets inside that event horizon, recall, nothing gets out. No way to get back out of it. So it's the disk of material around it. So you might have your black hole, you know, a point at the center, and around that you've got an event horizon, and then even further out around that, you've got a disk of material that is spiraling in, orbiting around it very, very rapidly. That's where the friction and heat heats up all that material. That's where all the energy is coming from. So it's outside the black hole. Once any of this material gets inside, it can produce all the energy it wants. We're never going to see it. 
You know? You could have 50 million supernovae go out inside that event horizon simultaneously, and it's not getting out to us. So it's all this material outside is where we're seeing the energy. And that's where all this radiation is coming from. All right, and then finally, let me finish this up here. Here's an example of some of the orbits. I'm actually going to show you this in a video form in just a second. But this is looking at one star here specifically. And this is a star orbiting around. Now this is, oh, a couple, this is .001 parsecs, probably a couple hundred astronomical units. So that's, that's still several times, that's many times the size of just the planetary orbits in our solar system. And you can see how fast this planet is moving. In 1992 it was here. Two years later it was there, and then there, and then here, and then 2001. So it took two years to go there, only took one year to zip around here, one year to get here, and it's now heading back around again. At the center, the Sagittarius A star that's labeled, you don't see anything. That's where you're not seeing anything. It's a large x-ray source there, but you cannot, even, even in infrared, even in the ray, you don't see a lot, any emission, a lot of emission coming from there. It's a very, very quiet source, other than being that is likely a black hole. The estimates, if you fit that orbit to it, so you do the calculations, figure out what the orbit of this star is, and match up the best fit. You know, sometimes the points are a little off to one side, sometimes they're a little off to the other, and you fit it the best, you end up with the mass of this object, the mass inside this orbit has to be about 3.7 million suns. 3.7 million suns in a few hundred astronomical units, what else can it be other than a black hole? You can't have that many stars that close together and have it be any kind of inhabited any kind of stability. And if it were stars, you'd be able to easily you'd be able to see that. So the only thing that would fit that much matter into that small of a region would be a black hole. So, I'm going to show you the video here and then I'll come back and do the summary because we're just about done with chapter 4. Let me put this up here. And let me pause for a second. All right, so let me finish this up here then. So again, a little easier to see it in the video. You can actually get a sense of that motion and how it took about 10 years to go around here and zip around the center of the galaxy. And when that star came in, it went in and it turned and turned on and went almost straight back. That takes a lot of gravity to be able to take a star moving very quickly, moving, you know, many astronomical units over the course of a year. It takes a lot for that to be able to, a lot of gravity for that to be able to be flipped almost completely around and sent back out where it came from. So normally we see orbits like this, a little smoother, but when you get those ones that come very close, but don't cross the event horizon, you know, getting close enough, they can be whipped right around. And measurements of that give us something, in this case, around 3.7 million solar masses. So gives us a pretty good idea that there's a lot of material down there at the center of our galaxy. And we'll see this in other galaxies as well. So let's summarize our galaxy and then we can get a brief start on, and get, at least get the introduction for chapter 15 started and then we'll pick up that on Friday. What is a galaxy? Well a galaxy is stars and gas and dust and dark matter that is bound together by its gravity. So a galaxy is all held together. It's not breaking apart or slowly separating over time. It's staying together. Our galaxy is a spiral one. 
So we know that from indirect measurements, we can't go outside of it and look back down and tell us. But indirect measurements, we can actually map out the structure of our galaxy. And we know that it is a spiral. I introduced you to the Cepheids and the RR Lyrae stars that are ways to be able to use distance measurements because there's a relationship between how they vary and how bright they really are. If we figure out an object's true luminosity or true absolute magnitude, we can then use it to determine the distance. We'll see a couple more of those in the next chapter. We mapped out the size of our galaxy. How big is it really? Where are we in our galaxy? Using the globular clusters that are kind of spread all around in a big sphere around our entire galaxy. And that gives us a better size, true size of the galaxy than looking at just stars because we can only see a limited portion of our galaxy looking at those. So if we look at stars here, you know, we might be seeing that general area of our galaxy, a small portion of it. And we lose that there's a lot of stars on this other side that just aren't visible because there's so much gas and dust in the galaxy, so especially the dust blocking out that material. Star formation, remember there was a disk, a halo, and a bulge to the galaxy. Star formation really is pretty much confined to the disk right now. So it's only in the disk, a little further out from the center of the galaxy, is where all the star formation is currently going on. And then we mentioned, I talked last time about spiral arms, where we finished up last time, um, that they may be density waves. So think of it as a big traffic jam that all the material gets bunched up together in that spiral arm. And that slowly is moving, but not as fast as the stars, which are actually moving through those. So a density wave may be a way to condense up all that gas and all that dust and those stars and illuminate, actually make, you, make the spiral arms visible. And then today we talked about a couple of these things. We talked about the rotation curve. That's that curve that I showed you on the, that first chart that shows that there is a lot of mass that we can't see. In order for the observations, based on our current physics, if we go by that, based on that, there is a lot more mass. And again, not just a little more, not just, oh, we need, you know, we need a few more stars, we need a couple supermassive, couple big black holes out there to do it. We need whole galaxies worth of material. We need a whole other galaxy, two more galaxies worth of material out around, further out than this, surrounding our galaxy. And that's what we call the dark matter. We'll come back and talk about dark matter a little bit more again in some of the future chapters. And then finally, I showed you some of the star orbits that have been mapped out very close to the center of our galaxy. And making measurements, we're able to determine that there's a black hole of about 4 million solar masses there. So there is a black hole, there is a black hole there based on all of our measurements right now. And about 4 million times the mass of the sun and a relatively small one by galactic standards. Ours is a relatively small black hole. We'll see some that are you know, tens of million, hundred million solar masses. There's some very large black holes in some of these, some of these galaxies. Questions? No? Confused everybody? Maybe? Uh, wait, wait till chapter 17. That's even better. If you think this one's fun, wait till chapter 17. Now, I won't get very far into this. I got about a, eight, looks like eight minutes or so. I'm just going to try to get through the introduction. That way we can just jump right into it on Friday. Chapter 15, we're continuing on galaxies. But while we looked at our galaxy in the last one, now we're going to look at other types of galaxies. And I'm going to start today just going through the different types of galaxies that do exist that we find. We've really looked only at spiral galaxies. Right? That's the only one we've known about so far because that's our galaxy and that's all we've looked at. 
There are a lot of other galaxies. There are normal galaxies. Ours is classified as one of those, as a normal galaxy. There are active galaxies, abnormal galaxies. They're not as rare as you might think from, from that. If you think of them as you know, not a normal galaxy, but the active galaxies are probably a quarter to a third of the galaxies. So they're not really rare. They're actually very common. Many, many galaxies are active. And all that has to do with is you know, normal galaxies and active galaxies all have a black hole at the center. In one case, the black hole is getting fed, producing a lot more energy, giving you an active galaxy. In the other case, the black hole isn't getting fed a lot, so it doesn't produce a lot of energy. Yes, ours is getting, producing some energy, but not near enough to make it really stand out the way some of these galaxies do. So in this chapter, we have galaxy classification. We looked at the classifications of stars, right? OBA, FGKM. Um, now we're going to look at galaxy classification and how we classify the galaxies. That's still a work in progress. I mean, they're still, they've got, got a good classification, but it's all done by the appearance of the galaxy, pretty much. How does the galaxy look? Which is originally how stars were classified. How did the spectrum look? And that's how they classified them. That's about the stage we are with galaxy classification. We don't have a good idea yet of maybe how galaxies change from, could change from one type to another. Then we'll look at distribution of galaxies. How are they spread out in space? Um, Hubble's law. Hubble's law we'll come back to. We'll get to that either Friday or Monday. And that's going to be the last step on our distance ladder. There's three more steps in here we're going to talk about. That'll get us out to, that's our way to get out to the edge of the universe. That's our only way we're going to get out to measure things at the furthest distances. We have to depend on Hubble's law. Which depends on all of the other steps that went before it, which is why our estimates are, you know, just that, estimates. They're not accurate that the universe is, you know, 13,285,000,000, you know, and so on, years old. We can't do that. You can say it's 13 plus or minus uh, lots of hundreds of millions of years. That's normal galaxies. Then we'll look at the active galaxies, and we'll come back to the black holes at the center when we talk about that. So what is the central engine? What is, that is the black hole at the center of a galaxy. All right. So I'm only going to give you the first type of galaxies here, and then we'll come back and do these all next time. But we have the first class is spiral galaxies. So that's the general classification. But not all spiral galaxies look the same. You see there's some differences between here. How big is the central bulge? We're from very large to middle to just very tiny one really down in the center here, kind of blurred out. So you can class, you can see that there's differences in the central bulge. Perhaps you can see that there's some differences in the arms, how tightly wound the arms are together. So there's some variations based on that. But the way we classify a spiral galaxy is how big their central bulge appears to be. The biggest ones are classified as S for spiral. It makes sense. We don't usually do that, so let's change it to a J. And a little a. So S just means a spiral galaxy. A little a means it has a large bulge. It's got a large bulge around it. Then you have an SB. It's making too much sense. Don't worry, I'll confuse you a little bit when we get to the one of them on Friday. One of them does throw you off a little bit. And SC, which has a small bulge. 
And that is really simply how we classify general spiral galaxies. How big is that bulge? You make measurements, you compare it to other ones, and you'll get SA, SB, or SC. Not quite that simple. Actually, there's some. What do you get to the ones that are in between? I mean, is it only one kind exactly bulge and then a big gap and then you get another one? No, you'll see some if you ever look at them that are SAB or SBC that are kind of in between them. So it's not an exact determination, but it's a rough one. But typically, they're classified as the largest bulges are all A's, the smallest, the middles are B's, and the smallest are C's. But yes, you can find some things that are actually in between in between those and you will find some classifications like that. So that's what's being shown here. These are three different galaxies and this look, just looking at the size of the central bulge. Now, there's another type of spiral galaxy and we'll look at that next time. And in fact, I'll come back and put all this back up on the board on Friday. Just give you a little bit of a, of a, start, a start into it here. But there's actually a spiral galaxies we looked at before with the bar going through the center. So you'll see some of those with a bar through the center and I'll show you some images of those next time and we'll look at the second, second classification. So we're starting off with all spirals, then on Friday we'll get into some of the other types of galaxies. We'll look at five different types by the time we're, five different types, major classifications by the time we're done. Questions? Yay. Yes? Uh, does bulges have anything to do with the age of the uh, galaxy? Or is that? Not really. Not that I know of. That they're not, they don't seem to necessarily go progress from one to the other. If that's what you're, you know, is there a progression? We haven't really seen any kind of progression in, you know, the galaxy start off with a real big, big bulge or a real small bulge and it either grows or it shrinks over time. That's not something that I've ever seen a good correlation, correlation on. Um, originally, and I'll give you the diagram next time that shows that we thought there was, that this was how galaxies switched from one type to another. But really now they're just, it may have just to do with exactly how they formed, which we'll get to a little later. The size of the bulge, how much material is in towards the center? So yeah, how much there's more material towards the center in these and less material in the others. So how big that bulge section is. But it probably has more to do with how the star how this how they formed than anything else. Okay? I think just one more quick one. Does, yeah. does the size of the black hole can also be influenced by that bulge as well or not necessarily? There is a relationship between the size of the bulge and the size of the black hole. I think I show you a diagram of that. I don't know if it's in this chapter or the next one, but I do show you one. Yeah, yeah. So there is a relationship there between the between the black size of the black hole and the size of the bulge. But I'll show you a diagram of that. I think I think it's later in this chapter. Anything else? No, no. All right. Have a good rest of the day, and I will see you Friday.